The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. In Discussion with David Gibbons is sponsored in part by Bowman Global Change. Specializing in helping companies reduce their carbon emissions, Bowman Global Change applies real science to real business practices to produce results. From designing green programs to one-on-one training to helping set up green action teams in your business, Bowman Global Change translates complex science in practical ways that everyone can understand and use. For more information or to discover how Bowman Global Change can help your organization, visit bowmanglobalchange.com. St. James, co-founder of the Global Summit, joins me today in this four-part series talking to a lifelong dedication to social justice, hands-on international policy research. This work fuels her passionate dedication to a multi-sector collaboration. Melanie St. James, welcome to In Discussion again for this second in our series of four programs. Thank you. Great to be back. Melanie, we started off with a wonderful program that uh, discovered uh, your journey and discovered uh, how you became immersed in all of the areas that uh, the Global Summit talks to. I'd like to concentrate today on the Global Summit itself and the seven uh, target areas of sustainability. Can you... Give me an overview for our listeners on the Global Summit uh, again, uh, starting this program, and essentially what the event in November is going to achieve. It's going to be a landmark event in bringing together some of the more powerful people in the world who actually have the capacity and the resources and the political positioning to change policies that affect the reality for the people who are unable to have their voices heard, and it also brings in people from the grassroots to be in the conversation. And this is a departure from what a lot of conferences seem to be where, um, like the World Economic Forum and um, some of the very high-level forums, they discuss resolving poverty, but the people who are really affected by poverty, AIDS, and climate change are not in the room, and there's no input system. And so we're really working hard to bring in the grassroots into a very structured conversation that leads to commitment and outcomes and also to deliver a whole training system that enables collaboration around the year from the ground up. Now, this is a true collaboration between citizens, businesses, and organizations. Now, is it also including philosophers, uh, scientists, artists? Absolutely. We have uh, six sectors that we strategically engage, and this is directly related to the seven stages to sustainability and 
the partners and empowerment framework that preceded the Global Summit in its design. The six sectors of the partners and empowerment framework include artists in action, social entrepreneurs, four impact organizations, which is basically nonprofit organizations, churches, civil society groups working to uh, impact the greater good, for profit businesses, uh, education and research institutions, which includes the inventors and um, academics, uh, as well as media and communications groups. It always appears to me in the past, having attended many uh, events, that you bring together scientists and artists and people in the media, but there's always a disconnect afterwards. As well you may know with scientists, they tend to work in their box. Uh, this is a, a well-known um, uh, problem. How do you intend after the event to maintain a sense of communication? Through two things, having the training in seven stages to sustainability as a common philosophy and uh, context for ongoing collaboration. And that's really missing, I think, in most forums and, and different silos and philosophies out there. And it's not just scientists that work in their boxes, it's every field. And also through an online collaboration portal that we've been developing since 2006, and now there's a lot of um, free open source software that we are um, bringing together to implement it. So it's a combination of the context and shared communication and collaboration framework that we're delivering, as well as the tools that bring people together around the year, um, focusing on specific commitments that they make during the Global Summit. What is the participation of citizens in this event? What role do citizens play? Yes, you know, this is another thing I'm trying to examine here because I have been on many panels. Yeah, that. And it always seems to me that if you bring scientists and artists together, that citizens tend to be left out, whether it's because they don't understand or because they're not, because they're precluded in some way. How does the Global Summit? Um, assure that citizens coming off of the street can have a real solid participation in this? By delivering education and workshops that are relevant to their lives. So we actually have three, at least three, actually more, but three basic areas. We're delivering personal development in the seven stages, so everyone gets it. Everyone's following the same pattern, as well as business-related uh, workshops and community development. And then the citizens are invited to participate and to go wherever their heart desires and also to engage in the solution councils. And the solution councils, rather than being a panel speaking down to the audience, it'll actually be a circular format where the experts are uh, placed throughout the audience and they stimulate the conversation. And that really um, is facilitated by expert moderators in a in a format that's that's um, immersive there's dialogue there's a lot of questions the citizens will actually be invited to converse rather than just to listen now is Not this with, is is mm -hmm. that with the intention of truly finding leaders truly saying to people across the board you can be leaders in this you don't have to be spectators but leaders going forward in whatever field that you're immersed in yourself exactly and that we need them that these issues cannot be solved 
by governments and scientists and nonprofits who are completely anemic due to the economic collapse. Uh, nonprofit funding has been cut in half um, from major organizations who are proven, who have, you know, decades of followers. And so if we want to, you know, meet the challenge of climate change, if we want to actually reverse the spread of AIDS, if we want to assure human rights and safe water and all of that that we take for granted, then everyone's got to get involved. And so it's not just telling the citizens that they're appreciated, but it's actually treating them that they are from the get-go in the program. Looking at all the areas, you have climatology, uh, oceanography, you have the biodiversity, you have the eco-challenges. How are you structuring that throughout this period? Are you uh, bringing uh, specialists in to handle each one of those areas, or are you asking everybody to come into each of these areas to have a crossover of collaboration and information? Totally multi-sector. Um, we have three main components as far as the content delivery. One is the seed change forums in the morning. That's your main plenary, and that's where we do have some visionaries, but across different sectors, talking about science, spirituality, and sustainability on day two, getting into economics. Day three is a giant call to action on the road to COP16 in Mexico related to um, climate action, and that's just in the morning. But the afternoon is very interactive, bringing together uh, the businesses, media groups, artists, citizens, uh, youth as well in the solution councils on a daily basis. And so the very broad, um, integrated discussion, for example, of redefining human security, it's... um, brings together experts and citizens, organizations, businesses, media groups that are interested in the issues of women's health, child development, and hunger. And those three semi-topics definitely intersect in a big way. And then we're hoping and actually strategically facilitating that we start with a larger conversation, inspiring input and uh, actionable goals and then when people can identify their commonality and their their synergistic areas of interest, then they're encouraged to move into more targeted, action-oriented processes of commitment and planning. Before we look at the seven stages to sustainability, I'd like to talk to the political arena as it is today throughout the world uh, in context to the united nations yes. <laughs> to the european union to the uh, federalistic uh, policies that you see in brussels is it the mandate of the global summit to overcome uh, their presence to be able to find another paradigm that really does um, come between the people and these organizations that have so much power today. Absolutely, and to change all of those groups, not put them out of existence, but to lead by example and demonstrate what is possible, and then in hopes of maintaining those infrastructures because they are needed, yet demonstrating what can be done with a more significant and real 
civic engagement process. If you look back uh, after the Second World War, Melanie, uh, you know, I, I do a tribute to many of the critical problems that we have in the world today as to um, evolving really after the Second World War. You have the United Nations and then of course in the 60s and early 70s you had the evolution of the European Union. Thereafter that you have many other organizations that that have come out of the ether. You know, you have uh, USAID and you you have so many organizations that are popping up. Well, yeah, you have the non-profit, the aid agencies that fill the gap of colonialism and the European presence building infrastructure in the developing world. So after World War II, there was a vacuum and you had a lot of new nation states without a real transition. And essentially those economies remain unchanged. You know, you've got the, look at Haiti, what's happened with their agricultural system. Look at Senegal with their, you know, being a completely food in, um, dependent country and still dedicating 40% or more of arable land to peanut farming absolutely directly related to colonial uh, times is it then that we have to reverse the course of history from the last 50 years i mean certainly yes absolutely, i i, I look if at the un I, was built today it would never it would never be acceptable the structure is completely unacceptable if you look at a place like Haiti, of course, and I've examined this very closely, a huge amount of history there, and, and of course, uh, great uh, involvement by the United States. Haiti, is it not typical of a country that has been occupied and had its base agricultural community um, diluted to the point where um, it has affected culture, have affected the society? Haiti has had more than that affected. They've had their basic elements of survival ripped out because of, I mean, just one example is the the pigs that were indigenous or at least um, there for a long time. I don't know how indigenous, but it used to be that uh, a Haitian family could send their children to school just by raising a few pigs. And then the um, that market in the U.S. basically replaced all of those pigs with a U.S. standard, and it was not feasible for the Haitian um, land and and just for them to raise those pigs. And so that livelihood has been completely cut out. Just one example. So, yeah, <laughs> definitely. Let's move on because we may come back to these areas and we do have four programs ahead of us. Let's go on to these seven areas. Seven stages, yeah. Seven stages. Could you, before we examine each one of them, because I think today's program is certainly going to be talking to them in detail, an overview, an overview of how these evolved again. I know that they come from your past work and empowerment works. What was the vision, the catalyst in your mind that began in this process of coming up with these seven stages? It was really looking at different projects that had very little to do with one another and recognizing that while they shared a general philosophy, um, you know, they were completely different issues, completely different demographics, and that these seven stages were so clearly inherent in the process of honoring the local community's values and really reversing all the negative things that have occurred through colonialization and the way we're not having any value added um, in most economic development in in Africa. In Senegal, I'll 
I'll give the the two project examples, and I think that really tells it all. In Senegal, uh, I was doing field research and population and human security, and recognized, wow, this region has an enormous amount of knowledge in medicinal plants and ecotourism and some of its textiles that if only they could be invested in and if only we could reach markets and if only the local stakeholders could be brought together with their diverse strengths, knowledge, and expertise, we could really build from the ground up. A similar Um, A mirror of that really occurred in Zimbabwe, working with local orphan care advocates, working with local artists that wanted to reverse um, the spread of AIDS in their townships, and seeing, oh my goodness, they have artwork, they have amazing, dedicated human capital, and all they need is access to markets and more of a value-added system. And so I was just... Uh, really called to work with local community members in both of these very distinct um, communities, one in South um, Eastern Africa, one in uh, Northwest Africa with completely different histories, completely different language groups, et cetera, et cetera. And I was well into the projects in you know 2000, 2001 with like one was actually my a paper that I'd done at the Monterey Institute for um, development and administrative practicum, you know, it was a year-long kind of project, and that was the one in Senegal, and it became like a, you know, a 30-page paper, and then the one in Zimbabwe was more of a rapid response and just wanting to help out these uh, these sculptors, and I imported a container of sculpture and was going to go ahead and try to sell the sculptures for them and then bring funds back into Zimbabwe so that they could implement their solutions. And um, by yep. the time... Oh, you're going to ask a question. I was, I was you know, I, I mean, I'm, this, this, is, this is good because you're raising issues here that, that it's a double-edged sword, is it not? If you look back uh, to the 1500s and you see the way that we entered into these countries and we took their resources and we sold the resources and we capitalized from it and we left so many cultures up in the air. And yet there is still a double-edged sword in so much that what you're talking about, in a way, is diluting or minimizing the global village so that we can concentrate again um, on local cultures. Is the problem not that for local cultures to do this, to develop their own countries, they still have to have exposure to worldwide markets and they still have to have a financial mechanism from developed countries. Access to markets is a big part of it, especially if their greatest economic resource is designed for global markets like in Sierra Leone. Their diamonds uh, are really not valuable in Sierra Leone, but the lack of value-added support to those diamonds, you know, that's, that's a missed opportunity. So I think you know, if we're from where they are today with the lack of infrastructure, the quickest way out of poverty is for them to be a player in the global market with what they have. That said, um, local market access, um, value-added uh, production, that's why it's not always you can follow the seven stages to um, to sustainability without ever crossing a border and completely reverse the quality of life in a village. 
just by um, doing it at a national or a localized level because it's really strengthening and transforming whatever the local resources are so that they can be of greater value and improve the quality of life at the local level. It may or may not relate to the global village. And yes, there's a lot of reversing that needs to be done, but I, I'm not really of the philosophy that there needs to be a endless um, kind of guilt <laughs> and, and payback. I, I think that we do have a huge debt but I also like to think of it as more of, okay, well, with those resources, what did we build in the West? What technologies do we have because of that? And how can we exchange with them now so that we can start to heal it? That is an ongoing problem, isn't it? You know, in the past, you have seen the United States and other developed countries uh, go into places like Ecuador and uh, find their resources and um, essentially place a great debt on the government so that uh, United States companies can come in and, and take those resources. There have been uh, amazing uh, problems with this. Yeah, and look what Venezuela is attempting. I mean, what, in, in so many ways, what they're doing is remarkable and incredible, and, you know, we're not supporting it in the United States. So, um, you know, I'm not saying it's it's perfect, but... Well, it's always it's always about power, isn't it? Oh, if, yeah. if you look at Haiti and you look at Ecuador and many other countries, it's it's yes, it's about business wanting to make money, and there's certainly a huge element of greed in this at the corporate mansion level. But it's also about power. It's also about uh, wanting to possess another country, not just be because of the business, but also to possess it and to occupy it so that that culture can be. Uh, controlled. Yeah, and so that we can feel safe, they can it can be predictable. We can have the resources we need at the price we want. Um, yeah, it's all of that. Very little changed in the last five hundred years. <laughs> so, in other words, perhaps what we need to do now is find a mechanism that is regulated, so you don't have that uh, predatory greed. So that uh, countries in in places like the United States can certainly be invited into these third world countries but not with the idea of taking over or conditioning or, or any anything else but simply helping them with their culture helping them with their business right but it's not politically acceptable to do that so i think it's um it's, it's funny it's not politically acceptable to major uh major vested interests it's um, the opposite is true about what the citizens really believe in, and, and in all countries. And therefore, I feel strongly it's about the transparency, and it's about the knowledge of people everywhere of what's going on and having some kind of an input system, which brings us back to the Global Summit. If we can expose and shed a very, you know, be a neutral space for, um, for truth and light into all of this, and create that context of, of clarity and commitment and what is and what is not acceptable. There's the International Criminal Court, which I find is the closest thing to what the Global Summit is achieving to, to do. Um, but there needs to be so much more. It's, it certainly is an uphill battle in, in many ways. Looking at the stages, you divide them into internal and external focus. Yeah. Um, can you define what brought around that mechanism, why you're starting internally and then finishing up externally? Well, the beautiful thing about the seven stages to sustainability is that I'm learning more about it uh, all the time. 
we had developed it, or I had, you know, noticed the pattern between the projects in Senegal and Zimbabwe, as I mentioned, and they the stages sat on our website for a long time, and I didn't really know how to get it out there, or, um, you know, I just felt like, well, we need this global collaborative community to participate in it, and then as I mentioned in the last program, got the opportunity to go to China. And before that, our, our board and advisor said we need to turn it into a curriculum. And so in turning it into a curriculum, that's when the real research um, and awareness began. And I reached out to Arthur Purcell, who has uh, developed thousands of curriculums. He's um, been an advisor to the European Commission and um, different arms of the United Nations. Um, he's an environmental education specialist, and he actually analyzed the seven stages and said it covers pretty much about anything anyone would need to do and he broke it down into those three areas being um, the first three stages being internal which you know you could see that as the local stakeholder and community process one of identifying and engaging their own partners and stakeholders um, you know and then up through three looking at uh, the first stage yeah. Uh, building a team around your ideal future. I, this is an interesting question you put in here. I'd like to know how you would define sustainability. I speak to so many people, so many experts. There is still a confusion around what sustainability is supposed to be about. I think the Brundtland Commission definition is pretty nice. <laughs> it's um, essentially meeting the, day, the, the needs of today's population without jeopardizing the needs and interests of the generations to come. And in that sense, it's very big picture and environmental. Uh, however, when we discuss it um, in the context of the seven stages, because this is not just about environmental um, resource management. It's also about addressing um, AIDS orphans' needs and, you know, health and all of our social needs. And so social sustainability is has a lot to do with the local community taking ownership and feeling connected to the goals and uh, the training and the capability building, the, the ability to pass on whatever it is to other people. You're talking about community development here, Melanie, yeah. and this is probably the most important area to look at. The Global Summit then is becoming a um, uh, becoming the middle ground uh, between the uh, the present uh, infrastructure that you have, whether it's the UN or the European Union or whatever it is. There is a fine line and there is a very special relationship that has to be created between the corporate structure and the way that a, a, a local community is developed how do you think that organizations like the united nations have failed and where can the global summit come in here to ensure that the corporate mechanism comes in and finds exactly what a local community needs and service that beyond any any need for immediate profit so that it returns the local community towards its indigenous background towards its culture towards its lifestyle and 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 its uh, special gifts that it provides the tool of 
from the ground up um, project development, that's really the big distinction. The United Nations is failing in certain areas because its structure is, by design, it's from the top down. Many of the decisions are political, um, based on backroom deals. Um, you know, even look at the, the anyone who saw um, the movie about the dolphins, the, the cove, you know, look what happens with the Japan and the whaling and, you know, the little islands, all of those kinds of things. Um, it's about the back door. It's about the lack of transparency. That's where the United Nations is failing. There's the five Security Council members. There's no sort of uh, logical, equitable system of, oh, let's have a diversity of cultures, languages, and uh, numbers <laughs> that are making these decisions. It's, it's very arbitrary. And because of that arbitrary, um, because of that, it's, it's um, people aren't trusting it at the local level. And by contrast, the system that the Global Summit is advocating is a training of whether it's in Africa or in New York City, we are delivering a training program where people at the local level can then communicate online through project development tools so that corporations who might have technology that supports maybe a at-risk school program can respond directly to the inquiry of that um, community project director. So it's very transparent, very systematic, or on the other hand, if there's a um, water technology group in Germany, they can respond and collaborate with a community program going on uh, in the Sudan or in, you know, wherever it's needed. It's much more commitment-based. It's civil society uh, directed. It's open. It's voluntary. And it's really leveraging the new global currency of PR, social purpose, and consumerism. I mean, at the end of the day, it's really consumerism that runs it all because they're the ones supporting the corporations who are essentially running the governments, who are running the United Nations. And so we're trying to close those gaps. So we're all responsible, really, aren't we? I mean, you, we're, we're all consumers. We've got and, the and, power. And, 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 I, and I don't even like that word anymore, and I'm trying not to use it. I would rather change it out for citizens. But, you know, if you look at organizations like the UN and you see their role in Haiti, I mean, is it not pretty hopeless? I mean, they're, they're not, uh, certainly not doing what they're supposed to do or what they were set up to do back in, uh, you know, the, the post-war years. Do, in your mind, in, in, in the minds of the many experts that you will be working with at the Global Summit, is it thought that traditional organizations like that need to disappear now? No, I don't think they need to disappear at all. I think um, they just need to get on the same page. And I've spoken with a lot of um, practitioners of disaster relief, and that's one of our big hopes that seven stages to sustainability can can actually, um, you know, heal and, and strengthen their capability to collaborate more effectively and to build the local uh, self-reliance 
in the communities that they're serving. There's something called clustering. There's some, you know, strategies for disaster relief where um, the different organizations come together and they identify, okay, what we're going to do first. We're going to focus on tents, shelter, water, food, and they divide and conquer. But it's not focused on strengthening the local citizens, local organizations, local businesses, collaborative process to manage those solutions themselves. And that's what we are really passionately advocating through the Global Summit and Empowerment Works, this whole raison d'etre, its existence is, hey, there's another process that can plug everyone together and really have it be vetted and owned by the local community. Really, it's uh, the big word is corruption, isn't it, in Haiti? Uh, corruption gets in the way. And when I look at people like Sean Penn, I mean, what an incredible effort there. But isn't it sad that it, it takes somebody like Sean Penn to clear the rubble? I, uh, I know that his biggest priority is clear the rubble. And it seems that he's left on his own down there, and there's nobody else really working hard to, to help. Is it ordinary citizens that are eventually are going to have to come into areas like this and take take the lead where the larger organizations are not going to do their job absolutely absolutely yeah the local citizens in haiti and those are the ones that are affected by it and that's always been what's really motivated me is seeing oh my gosh these local people are so talented and they get it they know what needs to be done and it's their problem at the end of the day so why wouldn't they be the number one um, resource? Let's move on to stage two, assess your assets. In this part, I think, Melanie, we probably would look at the movement of people. We'd look at the competition for resources as well. Uh, what you are saying here is in any community, in any culture, what you have to do is really find out what you're good at where you are and what base materials and gifts that you can return to. Um, exactly, and that's your strength. Now, in that, we really need to take a look at competition for resources, don't we? Because we're in a world at the moment where a country like the United States is being pulled on terribly because people want to come here, they see the resources here, so they travel here, not with the, the view of staying, but they certainly see jobs and they see resources. Yeah, they want a piece of the pie. What is the process of being able to maintain people in their own country where they really want to be and invigorate them into believing in their culture and not having to move away it's the value added to those local resources and that's what stage five and the seven stages stages addresses where in the global summit will that be concentrated on that would be on? we have a whole uh, series of seven stages to sustainability workshops and that's going to be um, delivered two to three times each of the three days so in the morning, you know, it's the, it's the larger presentations and discussions, and there's lunch, culture, and all that. And then in the afternoons, there's workshops that deliver on day one. There will be stage one and stage two delivered, and they'll be delivered by various perspectives for different target audiences. 
uh, for example, something related to the business side of it, something related more to personal side of it, uh, and, of course, to community development. So even if you're an individual, you need to know who are the people that empower you, who are your team members, and stage two, what are your strengths? There's a workshop that um, Nikki Slade is coming from the U.K. She's a voice conductor, and it's going to be identifying your strengths, your personal strengths through your voice. So that totally relates to any person walking in from off the streets. Um, and then on the other side, you know, there'll be um, currency systems and bartering and how do we identify and exchange resources at local level, which actually attracts economic development instead of creating more disparity. Okay, so you're, you're now you're going back to pre-1500s where you're taking the emphasis off money and you're actually bringing back in the barter system. Absolutely, and, and not as a uh, isolated only way to go, but a ton of research has been done on the local economic trading systems. Uh, about 15 years ago, there were only about 200 that were registered in you know, a certain system, and now there's well over 1,500 or you know, maybe more than a couple thousand at this point. And the research shows that when you have a central monetary system that, you know, without, you know, not given taxation and redistribution, there's a natural disparity of wealth that occurs in that kind of capitalism. However, when you have a local trading system, and it doesn't mean barter, it could include, I mean, ultimately it's barter, but a trading system that's quantifiable and it keeps the trading local. So it could be time credits, for example. And what that does is it actually reduces the disparity and the um, the removal of resources. So that uh, so that would be a methodology that would would work very well in Africa, especially in Zimbabwe, where you have hyperinflation at the rate that I think it even blows uh, pre World War II Germany out of the water. But it could also be applied to. Westernized countries to, to, to develop countries. Yeah, it's happening in Ithaca, um, uh, New York, uh, Georgia. It's 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 happening all over the United States. Uh, Boulder. There's yeah, a lot of it going on in the United States. Yeah, I mean, I, I've got to uh, tell you, Melanie, that my feeling is that money is going to become absolutely worthless. I don't know what point, but I think that people have to look at their own gifts. They have to look at their own heritage. And they have to look at their own resources. Right. Uh, well, that's and, the only uh, thing we really have. And this whole idea of what's in the bank account and how much your bomb's worth is an absolute illusion. You get on to um, the, the final stage of the internal focus, make a plan. Now, uh, and before I hit that, in the Assess Your Assets, you're talking about self-esteem building. Now, there's a lot of spirituality and awakening in that statement, isn't there? In, in that whole idea of, of self-esteem, of finding yourself, mm. uh, waking up, um, becoming conscious of those around you, of people around you, of the world around you. Um, who would you bring in? Who would be talking to that sort of, uh, that sort of idea, that concept? A few people. Um, gosh, we have, like I mentioned, Nikki Slade, um, self-esteem building. I'm part of the World Academy for the Future of Women. We have a whole lot of incredible facilitators, so we'll, we'll likely be having, having at least one or two of them. There are so many incredible counselors, and there's so much coaching work going on in the United States. So we have we have a few different workshops right there. But Nick Jenkel, I uh, just have 
come to know and had an amazing meeting with him this week. He's um, one of his websites is WeCreate.cc, and he's a genius with sustainable leadership and has amazing processes around this and many other areas. We're also um, in dialogues with an amazing organization that uses cultural arts and performances and physical processes to become conscious and awaken the spirit and do the transformation in the body called Turning the Wheel, and um, they do a lot of youth work. So we'll be integrating a variety of processes around that. Yeah, and turning the wheel is absolutely phenomenal. Making a plan, the final internal focus stage. Making a plan. Now, if we are working worldwide, we're looking at cultures worldwide, and let's pick something out. Let's say, uh, let's say Ecuador or a country like that making a plan. How can an organization like the Global Summit um, bring strategizing to another culture? How does that work? How would that be implemented to ensure that they retain their culture, um, create uh, their own business, become self-sustaining? We actually responded to a local request from Ghana from a capacity-building organization who just randomly found Empowerment Works website where this is all you know based from and said, this is so ideal, it's so fitting to our goals and our mission, and would you please teach it to us, and would you be willing to come? And he put together a 25-page paper and proposal describing the social, political, and all these different reasons why we need to have the symposium. And so we designed a four-day symposium that um, actually, where they invite all of their local capacity-building experts, and we just support the framework as a facilitating partner. So it's definitely not about going in and doing anything. It's more about, well, here's, here's the, uh, the process and how do we, who do we invite in to, um, to kind of take a stand around these areas so that the local participants feel empowered and strengthened uh, to follow through. And, you know, just generally a lot of the more progressive and kind of empowerment-focused community development organizations, they have processes around that where uh, local stakeholders, like when, when we were in Zimbabwe, I work with uh, a local African woman with a fifth-grade education, and she, uh, you know, it's a, it's a process of questions. It's, you know, what do you see? What do you, you know, what is your greatest need? What, you know, what could be different? And that's where what is the ideal future kind of comes forward and after identifying who's at the table whether it's a village level you know school board or a regional level or a state level it's identifying who those core stakeholders are with an eye towards several sectors in order to ensure diversity and inclusion of the vulnerable minorities and as well as you know those with more assets and resources um, then it's you know, putting that plan in place, and it should be a flexible plan, but, you know, so it's really the stakeholders that identify those goals, so it's goal setting. That was a great answer. Um, <laughs> Melanie, we go on to number four, and we're talking about educating yourself, and I don't think there's probably too much to say about that, um, but nevertheless, education is very important. Um, is there a mechanism, that, a basic mechanism that you look for that, for that educational process? 
Yeah, and I, I just at this point want to say how important the integration of all these stages are and kind of paying attention to the fundamental building blocks that they represent because, you know, if we look at these as isolated um, areas, these are already being done and there's so many mechanisms for self-education, but also, you know, the idea of stage four is getting the basic skills you need. It's basic training. It's how to read, write, use a computer, uh, dig a hole, do permaculture, you know, or not even that sophisticated, but just um, realizing the natural inherent capacity to then be able to bring in the more critical information and to be able to utilize the transferred technologies that come at the next uh, three stages. So in other words, the, the way in which we're doing this as a narrative for the listeners is the way in which it should be supported and uh, provided to those who are using this as a guide, that no one step can be taken out of this. They've all got to be used in this order to ensure success. Absolutely, and that doesn't that doesn't uh, negate that you could easily bring appropriate technologies in to people who are already able to use them. It's not saying, you know, these these um, activities should not occur independently. Of course they can, and they do, and, and oftentimes very, very effectively. And I wouldn't try to improve upon those ways that they're being done. But it's just saying that if we're going to follow an approach, you know, that these there's a certain order to them, and to learn them in this order helps to then utilize them in this order. So if we're looking at it as a framework, absolutely. We're on to number five, um, put the pieces together, uh, in, identify, invest. The, I think the most important point there for me is integrate best pra- practices. Now, best practices in an organization like the Global Summit who wants to um, become the safeguard, wants to become um, the mediator uh, between all the major organizations around the world. How do those best practices come about? Well, what's dynamic is important so it's it's really not um us defining it but using open source dynamic uh user identified and selected so one of our big visions and um and technology goals is to be the cnet for practices and people so it's really about the ongoing innovation and exchange and then again it comes down to transparency and that's interesting because it, when we see social media today and the way it's going, my goodness me, you're certainly seeing transparency. Um, we need to see that sort of transparency in the corporate boardroom. We, we, we need to uh, eradicate this predatory greed that, that has evolved over the last 50 years. Um, is, is that going to be one of the main talking points in this whole solution? Absolutely. And it's always been a merit-based uh, kind of system, and it is a system. In 2008, we identified guiding principles for each of the sectors, and so it's not about making it all about the corporations being wrong or, you know, the nonprofits being, you know, kind of (laughs) whatever Um, people might say about nonprofits, you know, that none of the money goes where it's supposed to. We don't, we rather, we follow the the process of the seven stages, which is, well, who are we and what are we going to be most proud of as stakeholders or representatives of educational institutions, for example, um, the collaborating or, you know, now we've changed it to four impact organizations. 
um, as the term, but we, we had a think tank and we identified the principles that we resonate with as a group and went through a whole um, selection process and a collective intelligence process and then um, also did collective intelligence um, through digital voting at the end of the two-day that two day think tank that actually preceded this, the global summit as an actual event um, this year. So it's the transparency, and it's also not some, you know, one person making the, the claim of what's best, but um, those sectors demonstrating what they themselves have declared to agree to. So it's all being at cause of your own, you know, being, being taking accountability and responsibility for your own actions based on your commitment. And that's what we are so dedicated and need support and resources, of course, to do it. But um, in the aftermath and the follow-up to the Global Summit, where there's the corporations that, that heed to the call to action around climate change, you know, once those claims are transparent, then, you know, they're out there online and the whole world can see it. As we approach the end of the program, I'm going to take six and seven together, uh, six turning assets into income. Um, and I think that you can apply that, you're applying that to people. You're applying that to people's gifts at the end of the day, what their trade is or what their understanding is in technology. Probably more today about how people can harness their technology. Most important in this whole list, this whole strategy, which I love, and the way that you end, deepen impact and build long-term self-reliance. Now, that is the success in that, to my mind, is ensuring that you maintain the global village. But at the same time, following those great leaders like uh, E.F. Schumacher, who talked about uh, small is beautiful in the world, if you can have certain cultures who don't have to be pulled to servicing a, a worldwide marketplace, but can actually service themselves, yeah. but at the same time that you can have nations and cultures that can serve both. They can create their own uh, uh, macro economy, but at the same time they can serve a, uh, a worldwide marketplace. Yeah, and bioregional bio trade would be nice. <laughs> so six and seven, um, you know, exactly. That's reaching the markets. That's access to local or global markets, as mentioned before. And the distinction is, you know, that's getting it, the product to market. It's also getting your message to the market. If, you know, your goal is social marketing and communications, then that's also a skill that could be delivered and that relates to that stage. And then moving into the self-reliance, that has a huge um, embodiment of practices in social business that um, Muhammad Yunus has just been a genius in demonstrating through um, Dan and Grameen and his different um, social business programs where there's economy, but, you know, it's really about serving the needs of the people. Also, public-private partnerships, and that's one of the great outcomes of the USAID in the last decade. They've really advanced this, and ultimately, that is the model that is going to create sustainability for the nonprofit organizations that are really dedicated to the service and to the quality, you know, of life of the people on the planet and it's okay to have businesses that are going for profit and no you can't have nonprofits that are just economically self-reliant on their own 
you know, that if we only had that, we would be absolutely missing the boat on a lot of critical, critical services that just are not economically sustainable. There needs to be business models that integrate and support those benefits for people and, um, you know, environments that are really critically in need of charity. So it's really how do those sectors come together with their unique assets and find a way to collaborate just like an ecosystem does so gracefully. In completing this program, what would your uh, concluding statement be as to, in the long term, the ultimate goal of the Global Summit? Sustaining a future on the planet that we can be proud of and that we can, um, we can pass on to our children and to really realize what I believe humanity has in its, um, in its heart and in its DNA as our ultimate um, ideal existence as a human family and to utilize what we have developed today and not to put it down, but just to say, let's take the best of everything that we have and bring it together to the best of our ability and create a future that we're proud of. What about your journey, Melanie? You've had such an incredible uh, leading role in this. How has your life changed thus far with this? How, how do you see yourself changing with this journey? Oh, I've been transformed, uh, turned inside out, um, it's a, it's a mission that is so much bigger than me that it keeps me growing. And for that, I'm really grateful. And I'm totally just blessed to meet people like you and all the incredible team members like Patty Conklin and Priya Mohan and just all the incredible volunteers and people who are just stepping in and, you know, without a dime, um, you know, offered or promised. They're just doing everything they can to make this and, you know, a breakthrough and for us to take it to the next level. And it's just, I wouldn't, I'm, I'm just really blessed. And, you know, I feel like it's my destiny and I'm just absolutely thrilled to be a part of it every day. Given that your father, like my father, was the mainstay of my life, yeah. how do you think that your father would, would look at this, not only in a, a personal perspective, but also in a way that would resolve and take care of those many issues that he was up against when he was trying to make such profound changes himself with his work? I think he'd be so happy, and I hope that he is watching, and, you know, I know that he is. Um, he had his, the anniversary of his passing this last summer, and all kinds of crazy things were happening, and I could just feel his presence, um, you know, with his research in medicine, with his hundred-something patents, with, you know, his major environmental breakthroughs never making it to the surface because of vested interests. You know, the Global Summit really addresses all of those sort of limitations. And we're really, you know, it might not be expedient or bring in an income right away or be easy to market to a target company, but it's like, it's the big picture. I think he'd be, I think he'd be pretty, pretty feeling pretty smug about it. You know, Melanie, uh, I collaborate with a, an amazing lady in the United Kingdom, uh, Dr. Susan Anthony in a hero series. And it's based upon people like your father in the past who have come up against the, the, the problems in society and corruption and, and uh, the corporate mansion and it goes on and on and on and on and they're real heroes and 
we need heroes, don't we? We need leaders and we need heroes. And would you agree with me that, that everybody can be a hero today and needs to be so that we can safeguard our future generations? Yeah, and you can be a hero to the person next to you at the grocery store just by saying something kind or lending an ear or just being there for a friend. That's something I've been so goal-oriented for the past 10 years and kind of obsessed with what I want to do. And it's I've taken a lot of hard hits and really grown a lot. And I've, I'm learning that it's about all those little interactions that are so precious and so important. And so it's, you know, there's, there are no little people. We're all... Um, you know, so vital to everyone around us, and it all matters. Melanie St. James, I think I can honestly say to you that I, I think that you are an amazing hero today. You have a great uh, opportunity here, and you are clearly uh, working so hard to, to change our world, and I'm very privileged to be part of it, and I'm looking forward to working with you uh, on this program in the future. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, David, and thank you, everyone. Looking forward to our next time. And to our listeners, uh, that is uh, Melanie St. James. Uh, she's the Executive Director of the Global Summit in November. You can find information on this and any other program in the series at davidgibbons.org. Meanwhile, wherever you are in this world, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. David Gibbons in discussion welcomes listeners' comments and viewpoints at its blog at davidgibbons.org. This programming is supported by organizations and firms in the private and public sectors. In Discussion with David Gibbons is sponsored in part by Bowman Global Change. Specializing in helping companies reduce their carbon emissions, Bowman Global Change applies real science to real business practices to produce results. From designing green programs to one-on-one training to helping set up green action teams in your business, Bowman Global Change translates complex science in practical ways that everyone can understand and use. For more information or to discover how Bowman Global Change can help your organization, visit bowmanglobalchange.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.